Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Joanna. And welcome to a new episode of Show Your Work. We barely got this episode going. We had so much to talk about before the actual talk that we're going to talk about. Part of it was what we're having for dinner. <laughs> I mean, that was an important part of the discussion. Our takeout meal. It's true. Um, but also, before we start, we want to thank you for all of your emails and tweets and messages about our last episode, which was all focused on Ellen Pompeo. I love how much everybody knew how important it was, like, to us and to them. Um I really have, it's been a delight to read all your notes and, and be excited with you and to see that you were happy to hear it. So thanks for that. The patron saint unofficially without her permission of this podcast um, was uh, quite popular and we really appreciate it. Do you have to give your permission to be a patron saint? I don't know, but I, like, you know, I don't want, you know, we hear all the time from celebrities who are like, I did not endorse your blah, blah, blah. And the last thing we want is Ellen Pompeo to be mad at us. So, okay, so here's a funny thing. It's like my Catholicism, such as it is, is patchy. It has holes in it. But my understanding is that all saints who are canonized are canonized for, you know, actions or whatever that happened way, way back in the day, right? Like in the Middle Ages or similar. Yeah, you have to be dead. When they were martyred. Right, except it has come to my attention that St. Clair is the patron saint of television. Really? Yes. Okay. It's a known thing. Okay. Like, if you look it up on, like, your saint's database. Sure. But, like, television is 70 years old at most. I suspect that St. Clair was already a saint before then. So my point is, and there are, like, websites where you can look up, like, the patron saint of electricity, the patron saint of whatever. So I feel like saints are applied to things after their demise, long after their demise. Well, I mean, we don't want that to happen to Ellen Pompeo. No, no, no. I'm not I'm not invoking that in any way. My <laughs> point is just that you can be appointed to things. Right. Without and someone's thus, permission. I think that we can appoint Ellen Pompeo, the patron saint of Show Your Work. Anyway, yes. Uh, that's our mention of Ellen Pompeo because we want to mention her as often as possible. Hi, Ellen. Are you listening? Like, you don't strike me as a podcast person, but this is a good place to start. I don't even think we've dedicated an entire episode to Beyonce. So, Ellen, yeah. Know that. <laughs> now we're being patronizing. Speaking of Ellen, uh, no, speaking of Beyonce, um, we're, uh, today is Friday night and I just did an episode of The Social, um, your daily our, our talk. daily talk show here in Canada that I um I'm one of the co-hosts of and um Melissa Grello who um is one of the co-hosts she is obsessed with Jennifer Lopez and she's also obsessed with dancing which I am too 
And she had it in her mind that she wanted to be choreographed um, to J-Lo's music videos and she wanted to make it a dance-off. Wait, what music videos? Um, well, her music video, her Jennifer Lopez music video was Get Real. Or, yeah. Is it Get Real? I, I don't know that song. It's the one that, like, begins with, you know, and she's dancing with a cane. Yes. Okay. Yes. Anyway, she made it into a dance I believe off. you're thinking of Get Right. Get Right. There. And I hate the song. I didn't even look that up, you guys. I love you, Melissa. I hate that song. I think it's a shitty song. Anyway, so um, she needed someone to dance off with her and she knew that I would be the least likely to vehemently object. So this is how it was pitched to me. Hey, Lainey, if you don't vehemently object, then let's go ahead with this, Okay. Okay. But I'm going to call bullshit on you a little bit because you, with a number of our friends, with Sasha and Dean and Lara and so forth, you took a hip-hop dance class. Yes. uh, Some years ago. I did. You didn't include me in the invitation. (laughs) Well, it it ended up just being me and Sash. Well, the other thing that you gently didn't say is we didn't think you could handle a hip-hop dance class, which is absolutely true. It's not about handling it. Like, you go, there's like 80 other people in there, and you're like dancing and working up a sweat, and it's almost like a fitness class. It is not getting into, because when while Mel was J-Lo, I ended up being Beyonce doing single ladies, but playing the part of Beyonce. So wait, did you have, I haven't seen this, did you have like secondary dancers on either side? Well, think of the single ladies video. Yeah, I know. There were two backup dancers, Oshani and Sammy, who I adore. Let's just pause. Professional dancers? Correct. You are many things, but you're not a professional dancer? Uh, Duanna, I am not even like an amateur dancer. I'm a kitchen dancer. My understanding is that Beyonce, who of course is in the center of the you know, triad in single ladies is five foot seven without her heels. I may be slightly off there. I could verify that. Uh, Whatever. I am five foot three and a half. On a good day. On a good day. So all of the things that you're saying and alluding to are correct. I am not going to challenge you there. So my point is today I did this fucking thing on TV and had to dance to the single ladies choreography, mortifying. Um, not that I didn't appreciate Beyonce before, but I will say that those moves are so hard because I and I said this to you earlier. Beyonce doesn't dance to beat like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. She dances to one, two, one, two. Well, it's what we call a syncopated rhythm. Single ladies in particular is a, I'm going to mansplain this at you. Don't roll your eyes at me. Great. I'm so excited. Well, maybe if you knew this, your dance would have been a little bit better. I do know it, Duanna, because I had to try to dance to it. Are we posting the video of this in our show notes? This is what it comes down to. What do you mean, nope? (laughs) It's going to be all over the internet. I need a link to this in our show so that we can justify the time that we have spent on you and the places where Beyonce is uh, has not yet been paid appropriate tribute. Well, I just want to say that, yeah, dancing to the whatever beats that Beyonce dances to is really, really hard for 
like a fucking non, not even amateur. Let's just uh, go to the specifics here. What heels did you wear to approximate the single ladies' heels? I wore patent leather, like for all intents and purposes, like think um, flapper flapper heels. Right, like a but like a good four inch, four and a half, four. And were they new or had you worn them in? I worn them in. And you wore like an old school leotard, like our moms wore in the seventies. I wore a pair of tights, shiny black tights. I look forward to relishing this video I had over and to over again. approximate the single lady's outfit. In the single lady's video, she wears a bodysuit and fishnet stocking. Yeah, that was not going to fucking happen. So I wore tights, like black, shiny tights, and a one-shoulder top. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to reserve judgment. I, I was not, not going to wear a fucking bodysuit, It's Joanna. a leotard. It's a bodysuit no. with fishnet stockings. A bodysuit is what they sell at stitches with snaps in the crotch. A leotard is the one that you have to work up over your body. Do you think Beyonce Fine. would go for the easy route? Okay. She's wearing a leotard then and fishnet stockings. I was not going to fucking wear that. No way. It was… I was like… That is the tightest outfit I think I've worn in 20 years, what I wore today. So Beyonce, just back to the original point, Beyonce, everything, very difficult, high degree of difficulty, the highest, the end. And yet, we have not devoted a whole podcast to Beyonce. We've come close. We've come close. I think it's going to happen soon. Beyonce is planning. You know, something is underway. We, I, you, I can feel it in the… What do you call it? In the… In the ether? Yeah. There was just a snort of exhaustion from Yasik, and we're five minutes into our podcast. How dare you? Were you being exhausted at Beyonce? How dare you? How dare you? Anyway, um, I hope that was the appropriate amount of admonishment um, at Yasik for maybe daring to disrespect Beyonce. Anyway, let's move on uh, to this episode. We are starting with… With Oprah. As, like, we're not going to fucking put her in fourth position. You know, <laughs> Can you I can imagine. Well, I've been talking for three or four weeks about uh, having photo representation of the podcast, but I now have decided we actually have to do this. I'm looking around our studio, i.e. your dining room, and deciding where I will put it. Because we had a false start when I made kind of a prayer pose with my hands. You gave like a big arms open like everybody <laughs> pose. <laughs> Talking about Oprah with our glasses in hand requires sort of big arm gestures and grandiose verbal statements accentuated by your body. And speaking from your diaphragm. Is that where you're supposed to speak from? Yeah. Uh, I mean, your diaphragm is, a lot of people don't know, you support, uh, you sort of tighten your upper abs there. You need to breathe into your lower belly, make it expand. Right. So was that the right… Like, that was great. That was okay. great. I think, yes. That was the right word. I just wanted to use the right word. The right, like, Oprah oratory. Yes. It needs to be deeper. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> but no, now that you mention it, I've thought about a lot of things about Oprah over the years. I could do an Oprah episode before I ever did a Beyonce episode. 
I was Whoa. that was my pause waiting for lightning. Yes, but like, I there's st- locusts in the house. I think I stand behind what I just said. Well, I've never thought about the fact that somebody somewhere told Oprah Winfrey, use your whole vocal range. The beauty and the almost pain of Oprah is there's so much she's learned about work that she hasn't shared with us yet. And I just realized somebody somewhere told her, sometimes you go deep. (laughs) (laughs) You do that really well because you know what? You don't have a thin voice. I have a thin voice. Well, you have a higher register than I do. I naturally pitch low to begin with. I naturally have a lower, deeper voice. Um, But women aren't always asked to exploit their deeper voices. I'm realizing in the moment as we're speaking, the gift of show your work is discovering these things that she was told somewhere along the way, lean into the deep. Go down there. Everybody. Like, it's glorious. It's, it's, um, it's Tony Braxton. It's going low instead of trying to be feminine and going high. But I mean, and this is a tangent that I'm happy to follow about voices and specifically women's voices because that deep register is what you hear most often on television in certain roles. News anchors. Definitely female sports anchors all have a lower voice. You don't get a female sports anchor typically with a voice like mine. That's really interesting. Please confirm, Yasik. And he's nodding. Do you think that sometimes they cultivate it? Often it sounds like what we associate with a smoker's voice, a sort of a reedier, thicker voice that is a little bit pitched lower. I read a really enjoyable YA book about a month ago called Noteworthy by Riley Redgate, takes place in the world of acapella uh, and sort of a post-pitch perfect, but it predicate, it's predicated on a woman who has a lower register in her voice, which is something that a lot of women don't necessarily know how to deal with. It's a really interesting perspective. And I talked about Toni Braxton because, of course, she was the recording artist who was encouraged to go super low. She would famously not record until four in the morning because she could go super, super low at that time after she'd been drinking all night, as she pointed out, out in the rain. Anyway, Oprah. Well, I just think it's super interesting before we move on to the Oprah, because I do think this is a thing that we all know as women in particular, but we don't talk about enough. That's a really interesting perspective that you just noted from the perspective of someone who is self-admittedly a lower-voiced person, you. Oh, yeah. But so you were coming from the position of like lower-voiced people aren't always appreciated. I'm coming from the position of higher-voiced people, me, are all often not taken very seriously. And I hear this and it just sounds like a women's magazine because we're being told you're not right and I'm not right and… Who's perfect? Who lives in the middle? I brought up that book, Noteworthy, because of course I grew up in choirs and singing and there's an inadequacy presented to women who can't hit super high, very feminine notes, which this book deals with, which is really interesting. And by contrast, you're talking about having a high voice, maybe a, dare I say, a girly voice. Uh, that is not taken seriously, in your words. But 
So who's perfect? Who has the perfect voice? I think that it depends. I guess, once again, it depends on the environment and the circles and the industry. Like for me, my touchstone for this or my point of reference would be, as you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty into sports and I know a lot about sports. And I feel like I know probably more about golf, let's say, for example, than a lot of male and or female sports anchors. Sure. I want to say that. Sure. Like let's say if you're going to be a sports anchor, you're going to specialize in basketball or baseball or hockey or yeah. anything other than golf. True? Me? Personally? No, no, no. A sports anchor. Sure. If I'm going to go for yeah. a job at ESPN. Yeah. Well, it depends on what country you're in. Yeah. But in they're Canada, gonna... you want to specialize in hockey. Yeah, yeah, fine. Or curling or whatever. Yeah. Shout out to my mother-in-law. But sh- but nobody's going to test you. If they get you in the chair at ESPN and they're like, okay, this is your screen test, yeah. they're not going to test you on golf. True? No, they're not. They should. <laughs> so I'm right is what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, I mean, I – yes and no. I mean, I think de- it depends on the market. But at the same time, I, like I said, I, I can tell you about hockey. I can tell you about a general – my general sports knowledge is very good. Sure. But you know what? I would be kicked out of the room because they would be like, that girl is going to turn off so many of our viewers because her voice is so high. I.e., it sounds like a girl or like a woman. Yeah. So what you're telling me is that a sports anchor has to look like a woman Mm because I've seen what they look like. Yeah. But have a voice that presents like a man. Or at least doesn't veer so far into the 100% girly territory um, that the men watching would be turned off. Except in certain sports that have high female viewership. Like, I think you can have a high-pitched voice if you are, like, a color commentator for figure skating and gymnastics. Interestingly enough, those are often uh, commentated by former uh, competitors in the sport. Yes. But even in a sport like tennis, which, yes, the commentators are often former players, the People, the women who are called upon to commentate on tennis have low voices. Chris Everett has a low voice. Mary Jo Fernandez has a low voice. Um, You don't get, like, I'd be interested when and if, never, hopefully, Serena Williams, of course, retires. Serena has a very, quote, unquote, feminine voice. She does have or she does not have? She does. Uh Uh-huh. I have never, I don't remember hearing tennis called by a female expert with a voice like mine. Yasik, do you? He what shrugged. I, no, he, he shook his head. Yeah. Like Chris Everett, Mary Jo Fernandez, they all have the standard female broadcaster sports voice. Well, the image that keeps coming up in my head as the standard is Diane Sawyer. You yes. know, I grew up... Uh, We've talked about who was or was not home on what nights uh, growing up, but I grew up watching 2020 where Barbara Walters' voice was its own thing and its own kind of mockery. Yeah. And Diane Sawyer had kind of a – she had a timber is the -hmm. the word, but it was still feminine, right? Mm -hmm. Diane Sawyer, it should be noted, is a former beauty queen. Mm -hmm. And so her tone was – Tonight, on a very special edition of Primetime Live, 
We'll investigate the cult that happened in the Waco, Texas arena while discriminating against others who failed to drink the Kool-Aid. My teas are too proper. I have a little British that Diane Sawyer doesn't have, but there's a high and a low there. It was really hard to find that balance in the middle of my real voice, your real voice, and the Diane Sawyer ideal. Have you been criticized in one way or another for your voice? Oh, people have complained about my voice. I mean, I was actually <laughs> posing it as a rhetorical to our <laughs> listeners. Yeah, but I am a talk show host. It would It's okay because I'm on in the afternoon. I was once in a meeting that was like a really big deal for my career, and we somehow got onto the topic in the pre-meeting banter about vocal fry, and I was asked to demonstrate vocal fry. Yeah. Yeah. And what it is and what it means and how it relates to millennials being useless at work. Their words, not mine. Is there a perfect female voice? Do you have a perfect female voice? Have you been told as much? Are you a voiceover artist? Tell us. Please tell us. Because I, my personal position is that women have a lot more like hoops to jump through in terms of voices and broadcasting than men do. There are male sportscasters and male news broadcasters who have the readiest, nasaliest, squirrely voices. I hate so much. And somehow they're on the fucking radio or on the fucking TV. It's funny because a thing that you hear about all the time if you read about news anchors is ridding yourself of your regional accent. But it's almost always women who are told they have to do so or to find a neutral voice. This is not something that we hear leveled at male anchors all that often. Nope. And then we come to Oprah. I mean, that is what you call a narrative turn. So kudos to you. Thank you. All right. So Oprah, um, we debated talking about Oprah after the Golden Globes and her speech that everybody talked about. And we ended up tabling it just because by the time we recorded the next podcast, it had been over. And of course, we had other things to say. However, Oprah is on the cover of two magazines right now. She, Only? Well, two major ones that are making headlines. Um, she's on the cover of the Vanity Fair Hollywood issue, which is probably Vanity Fair's biggest issue of the year, the annual issue that comes out just around award season. It usually features at least one potential nominee. Um, and there's a whole history around the Hollywood issue. And Oprah is on that cover. And Oprah also covers In Style. Um, the, the headline on the cover is, Hello, Madam President? Question mark. We asked, she answered. The timing, of course, works out because not only are we talking about Oprah after the Golden Globes, but she is on a promotional tour. It's kicking up very soon for A Wrinkle in Time, directed by Ava DuVernay. So she, this is a standard schedule of press that people do when they have a huge movie opening. And this is a huge movie. It's Disney. It's a $100 million budget. It's Ava DuVernay. So it's Ava DuVernay. It's also Reese Witherspoon. It's Mindy Kaling. It's launching a new star, Storm Reid as Meg Murray. It's huge on all fronts. And what I love about what you said about she's on the precipice of a press campaign is it never feels like 
Here we go. Press day. It's. <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> okay. She soft launches into her press. Like she soft steps it up. Okay, that install is coming out in the end of January. That'll be nice. I'll have a couple of minutes. We can recover if we need to. And then the full-on launch happens three weeks or a month or whatever it is later. I love the, the gentle lull with which Oprah gets us back into seeing her every day. And yet, the reason why I pitched this to you as something to talk about for this podcast is not only the presidential headline, but I find it really interesting that Oprah and all its attendant descriptors, when you just say Oprah, there's a million things that follow her name. Oprah is, for all intents and purposes, on the path of an actress promoting a movie. Like, it is… How do I explain this? And I don't know if I can get it quite right, but we see Oprah as… 25 years of the talk show and a billionaire. And uh, as soon as she bought Weight Watchers or invested in Weight Watchers, I think it went up like $60 million or whatever that figure is, Oprah. And yet Oprah, when it comes to being an actor, is it, it's just so funny to me that she's also in a way not Oprah as an actor, right? Like she's not… If you think about if you think about who she's working with on this film in particular, Reese Witherspoon, for example, has an Oscar already. Oprah has been nominated for an Oscar, but she doesn't have an Oscar. And Oprah is um, walking the schedule of like a Jennifer Lawrence, for example. What a Jennifer Lawrence would do if I she has know. a movie coming out. I just thought it was, and def, definitely challenge this, challenge me on this, but I just find, I don't know, I just find this really amusing. I don't know, and here's why. Um, in the context of this InStyle article, which as I sort of scroll through it, each couplet of interviewer question and Oprah answer, each couplet could almost be a topic on its own on this show. But they talk about Oprah's uh, contributions to 60 Minutes which are beginning. She's going to be doing interviews for 60 Minutes. She talks about how it's all about the conversations, which is exactly what she has always said. It's all about the conversations. It's about finding out about people. She also says, uh, you know, that in your 60s, you take no shit. Uh, in your 40s, you want to say you take no shit, but you still do. In your 60s, you take none. There's both a quickening and a calming. My point here, and again, I wish I had the camera going all the time. Elena's pointing actively at me, flapping her finger to let me know that she agrees with this point. Or doesn't. <laughs> but that's what I mean. I mean, Oprah the Oprah, yeah. I don't remember her swearing before. Takes no shit. And now I'm seeing more and more that this is not the first interview recently, like at least not in the last two months, where I've seen her say shit. I think maybe once it was um, that Hollywood Reporter feature where she interviewed Jennifer Lawrence. That may have been it. But yeah, she in this in style, and 
listen, there's a lot of probably crossover between in-style readers and like the people who used to watch Oprah. And she's like, yeah, take no shit. And I'm like, oh, Oprah. Okay. Okay. I'm getting that. I, I just think it's interesting to explore Oprah's the side of Oprah's what what is that expression we always say there are many layers multitudes we sure, contain people multitudes. contain multitudes that yeah. that multitude or singletude or whatever um, of Oprah that is an actor and what I think is super interesting is that I do not think Oprah comes to acting the way she comes to talk show hosting and conversationing I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, and I think this is really exciting. I This is what I think is exciting, is that even Oprah, billionaire and all those things, has something that she wants really bad and she wants to get better at really badly. And that that I think is obvious. To me, it's obvious at least. I don't know. Like, I know what you're saying. I know that acting is the thing Oprah has never really conquered. Uh, she did The Color Purple and had an Oscar nomination, and that was actually before the Oprah mm-hmm. show really happened. And then she had Beloved, and that was not well received. Uh, so I hear that. But at the same time, when I look at this now and Oprah saying, in your 60s, you take no shit, I think to myself, this movie is released on Oprah's schedule. They approach her with this role, and Ava DuVernay says, only you can do this. And Oprah says, if it's released in conjunction with my 60 Minutes contributions, if it is released after such a time as I am able to do X, Y, and Z, she has the clout to decide almost everything about this movie based on her participation in it. See, I don't think she is the clout. It's about when she drops it. I don't think, I think Oprah comes to this as, Ava, I'm in your hands. I am an actor on this set and I just want to do the part justice. I don't think that Oprah in that moment pulls the extra levers. Oh, I 100% do. Not because she wouldn't do whatever for Ava DuVernay. I don't think she sits there and says, I'm going to make life difficult for you. But I think she's not stupid about her influence. And she sits down with the studio and Ava's like there as a, yes, I'm going to make this movie and says, you know what? I'm going to start doing X, Y, and Z uh, for 60 minutes. And I'm being honored at the Golden Globes with this award. Or maybe that comes post knowing that Oprah is about to do this movie or whatever and talks about when is the ideal time to converge all of these efforts to make it worth her while. And I don't believe for a minute that she leaves any of that to chance. She's too experienced. You see, this is, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to challenge you on her being experienced and I'm not going to challenge you on what her clout is and what it's worth. I, but I, I just don't believe that like when she took the role in what, 2016 or 2015. Sure. That this was, um, this was Oprah versus like Oprah telling Disney when to release the movie. Why not? Like, look, let me be clear. At the time Oprah takes the role in 2015, 2016, whatever it is, she doesn't know about the political disrepair the U.S. is going to find itself in. She probably envisioned a much different landscape. But you're telling me that Oprah, 
who has been an industry and a business since 1985 at the bare minimum, doesn't think always five years out, doesn't always have a 60-month calendar going of what is most advantageous when and what can capitalize on what? Of course she does. No, I. of course she does. I just don't think that that was the sequence of events. I think Disney sets the... Di- I think Disney sets the release date of the movie. I think she takes advantage of the release date of the movie. I think they work together to make sure that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association gets her that acknowledgement and the timing works out great. Do I think she's the architect of all of it? No. I think she's the architect of a lot of things, but I think also in this case, she might have exploited the great timing and used it to her advantage. I'm not sure that she's walking into Disney, which is, you know, has been around for longer than the 80s. And when you're talking about a billionaire, an individual billionaire, an individual billionaire versus an actual corporation, which is not just a billionaire, but a multi, multi, multi multi-billionaire, and Disney has just acquired Fox, I don't know. Like, even Oprah still has monoliths that she has to look at in the face. But she is a monolith. You said something I love about she walks into Disney and Disney decides. And I'm going, yeah, but Disney then deals with Viacom and she is own, which is not only just Oprah the person, but all of the attendant properties therein. She is at the table as one of those massive entities. She is herself. She is her person but she's also the architect of a lot of what some of these entities are going to do. I think it is a meeting of several minds. I think that's amazing that what we're talking about here is Disney battling it out with Viacom, which has an interest or doesn't in own, which has interests in, you know, X and Y different places and uh, whatever 20th Century Fox or whatever studios are involved here. This is fascinating to me that we're talking about one woman who is also, by virtue of who she is, an entity. She is a woman dealing with her own participation at the table, but she's also her own media conglomerate. Like Reese Witherspoon is powerful. She's not this. She's not in that table discussing when they're going to release it. And I'm saying I think Oprah was. Yeah, I, I listen, I see all your points. I just... For, from how Oprah is approaching this post-talk show actor stage of her career, I am sensing that her approach to her career as an actor is not one of, like, who she was when she was the executive producer of her show and the owner of this network. It is like, let me just be an actor. And I find that really, really interesting. I know what you mean because, you know, this is something she has chased and maybe never nailed, right? And I don't know how a wrinkle in time is going to be. It's going to be great, but it's not going to challenge her performance-wise the way some of her other roles have challenged her. At bare minimum, there's makeup and hair and special effects to kind of remove her from the final product. Or even like Henrietta Lacks, you know, which just came out last year. Um And she was hoping for, you know, some Emmy – well, I'm not going to put words in her mouth, but there were people who were 
thinking that there would be some Emmy possibility or other possibilities for her there. But to me, this is this is so fascinating because Oprah's second wave, third wave as an actor is coinciding with all of this talk about a possibility of an Oprah run for presidency. Now, she the headline that's coming out, the big, big headline that's coming out of this In Style interview is that she says that uh, it's not in her DNA. That's the quote. Um, it should be noted that this In Style interview took place three weeks before the Golden Globes. So that conversation has changed a little. I don't know. We don't know. Yeah, but, but you can follow up, right? You can call yeah. your interview subject and say, I just have one more question. I mean, that is the headline. Everybody's like, Oprah says she's not going to run. Whereas like two weeks ago, it was like, Stedman says that Oprah will do what the people want. And Gail's like, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that that's right. Um, I mean, even what you just said there is amazing. The idea that Stedman's like, yeah, sure. And yeah. Gail's like, take it easy. Uh, that says volumes about who Oprah is and has been and how she markets her friendships and her relationship and so forth. But here's the thing, to go back to what you were saying and Oprah's understanding of how to position a story and how to run with a narrative, is that at no point has she made Stedman wrong or Gail wrong. Stedman's like, she'll do what the people want. And Gail's like, oh, I don't know, I can't see it. And then in style, her quote is, it's not something that interests me. I don't have the DNA for it. So that seems to prove Gail's point, but it doesn't necessarily negate Stedman's point. There's a dot, dot, dot after I don't have the DNA for it, which is where Stedman's point comes in. But if the people are so compelled to want me to do this… So just to talk actually for a second about the dot, dot, dot to uh, mansplain it, if you will, which got a bit of an eyebrow raise at the table here. The Not dot, for me. The dot, dot, dot in uh, a journalistic article is the official indicator that something was cut out. This is not something I knew for a long time. Of course, it seems to indicate that somebody just trails off and it can indicate that, but it also means that maybe there was an omission there. Yeah. So you're absolutely right that it could be, you know, it's not something that interests me right now in the current climate. However, in 2020, blah, 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 or whatever. Yeah. And to be clear, there's no dot, dot, dot in the text of the InStyle article. I'm filling that in because it just seems like this statement, it's not something that interests me. I don't have the DNA for it. It doesn't feel definitive. Well, and nor does it say the presidency, or even more broadly, politics is not something that interests me. When she says it, and she's not stupid, she knows that the quote is going to be the poll quote, it doesn't interest me, in and of itself is not a quote that can be thrown back at her face years, decades later, if she changes her mind, if she changes her position, if she decides that being a state senator or a member of the House of Representatives or whatever the hell is part of her repertoire, it does not contradict her. And let's face it, it also doesn't contradict her because politics isn't necessarily an interest. It's not like knitting or, uh, I don't know, canoeing. It It's a calling. It, it's Right? Maybe an obligation. That's right. It's not something you would describe as an interest. Right. It's not something you dabble in. 
No. It is, uh, yeah, it's service to one's country, right? That's what we say when people are in the service. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Thank you for what you did for your country. It's not something they love to do. Nobody's like, you know what I want to do is put myself in mortal danger. It is a service. You are called to do so. Some people are not called to do so. Right. So the point here is, is the conversation I'm not really interested in having is, hey, should Oprah go into politics? Should Oprah run for president? It is the fact that Oprah is actually tapping into this conversation right now to service something else. As you just said, she's not stupid. There's no definitive, no, I will never run for president. No, I will not do it. At no point has she said that in the last four weeks. And let me just go ahead and put words in her mouth. She's never running for president. She's not doing it. Here's why. I don't know Oprah's Q rating, her approval rating, but she it is got to be sky high. People love her. She can do much more and be much more effective by choosing a role that is lesser than a president, if she has political inclinations, that allows her to capitalize on that without opening herself up to all kinds of scrutiny and having to make the daily unpopular decisions that I imagine face the president of the United States. But there's also other ways that she can participate in that process without participating in it through herself. I mean, if there's anyone who can be a kingmaker, and she has been a kingmaker before, it's Oprah. You're suggesting she could be the Valerie Jarrett in this situation? Sure. I mean, she, you could say, I said she's been a kingmaker before. She uh, was a huge supporter of Barack Obama. There's no reason why Oprah doesn't run and just acts as, once again, a kingmaker for the next person who she believes in so much and hard enough for her to access and leverage that kind of support. Yeah, I, I, no, I don't disagree with you. And she has spent the last 30 years learning how to use her influence. And maybe now that she's not on television anymore, maybe even more aware of which way she can swing her immense power. So I, like, I'm, I'm into that. I'm excited about it. But I think where it causes people consternation is the idea that it is, that it might not have Oprah in the spotlight. People love Oprah in the spotlight. People love Oprah speaking. There's a reason you laugh every time I do Oprah's voice. It is unique. It is surprising. It is, it's comforting. Like we've grown up to the point where it's a lullaby. This is why people want Oprah in that role because they want to believe she will be in front of them again. So I'm going to need you to guide me through the next two topics on our agenda. Um, let's start with uh, a request or a tweet that we got from Jen. And Jen was referring to a tweet, another tweet, from Julie Pleck. Um, Duanna, you'll be able to do more of her background. But when I see Julie Pleck, I see Vampire Diaries. Julie Pleck is the showrunner of The Vampire Diaries. She created it with Kevin Williamson. Uh, she's the showrunner of the originals. She kind of came up with Kevin Williamson, but she was the one who brought him The Vampire Diaries books and said, this is a show. This is a thing. And she's a massive, successful showrunner in her own right. 
So Julie Plex's tweet was um, over PGA and SAG weekend. So it was the Producers Guild Awards and the SAG Awards back-to-back, and she was actually responding to another tweet by Deborah Birnbaum. And Deborah was noting that streaming services had swept at the PGA Awards. So Handmaid's Tale and uh, uh, Mrs. Maisel had won and Black Mirror. And so that was Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Studios, not necessarily in that order with respect to those shows. Um, all winning in in their respective categories. And Julie Pleck tweeted, quote, no disrespect to streaming and cable, but could we please create a, quote, made for broadcast network awards category at Emmys and others? Between commercial act-outs, broadcast standards, and stringent running time, the playing field is simply not equal, not to mention budget for most. Which I understand on a very surface level, I get it. Like, Yes, on network TV, you have to cut for commercials, which means you have to edit and account for your show. Well, I don't even think that, yes, of course you have to. I think even that is insider knowledge, what you just said. Um, basically, what Julie Pleck is talking about is that it's impossible for network shows, and for the sake of network, what we mean here, and this is changing daily, but stay with me here. Networks who make broadcast television include ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, the channel, not the news network, and the CW and Freeform, more or less. Those are the broadcast networks. They have commercials, as you say. They have traditional airing schedules, and they adhere to, like, the old-school schedule of TV, which, again, super loose, starts in the fall, ends in the spring. They have sweeps periods. And in Canada, you know, we have a a big three, if you want to call it that, that CTV, CBC, uh, Global, uh, City TV is there, too, in certain markets. City TV Rogers is in there, uh, Chorus is a player, But these are all kind of the old school of broadcasting. And then there's what we called in our now ancient youth, we would have called pay TV, right? HBO has shorter run times and no commercials. Netflix makes shows when they feel like it and they're as long as they feel like making the shows. Hulu and Amazon and all of the other places where you now find your favorite shows, don't have the same restrictions. Specifically, they don't have commercials. They don't have broadcast standards, which means like you can show naked boobs if you want to or naked whatever or cursing. And there's not a, you know, an advertiser for laundry detergent or jam that's going to pull out. And when she talks about budget, they often make eight episodes, 10 episodes, even just on a There are many reasons why that helps your budget, but it's smaller. It's shorter. So this happened. She tweeted this tweet, as you say, on the PGA SAG weekend, and she got a lot of support initially and less call out than I would have thought. Because, of course, for some people, Julie Pleck makes genre vampire-based TV uh, she started on Dawson's Creek and Kyle XY, not that it matters, but is this a legitimate concern or is this sour grapes? 
Oh, no, I do think it's a legitimate concern, especially since, I mean, we're in the era of prestige, peak, whatever you want to call it, TV. And as you just said, all the shows that you all love, you being us, if you just name it off the top of your head, Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, uh, Breaking Bad had its run, right? Mad Men is a great one for this. Yeah. Uh, AMC was a no-name network that… Mad Men made, essentially. Atlanta, uh, Insecure. These shows that people write about and people talk about. Black Mirror, people have been talking about. Master of None, you know, we want to bring up Aziz Ansari right now. But still considered, like, always nominated for Best Comedy now, right? Well, let's just separate Veep. that. Let's just separate that for a second because Master of None, which is Netflix original, is, yeah, considered to be a real achievement in what constitutes a television comedy, uh, regardless of who created it and why. But yeah, it's it's playing by a different set of rules. It's interesting that you brought up Atlanta because Atlanta is FX, uh, which also broadcasts the Americans. And they kind of walk a weird line of being kind of a network, but not really. Uh, it's a little bit like Bravo in the US, which is, or or USA networks, which are sort of they're almost seen as junior networks, mm-hmm. and they at one point had almost as stringent restrictions on their shows. Suits, of course, made famous by one Meghan Markle, uh, is also on USA Network, but they kind of stopped caring. Those networks were getting the eyeballs and the views for their programming and didn't so much rely on the advertisers in the same way as the big three or the big four always have. Uh, and by virtue of that, I guess the junior three, the, you know, CW and Freeform where Julie Plack tends to live. So it's a very interesting conversation because are we now making kind of two tiers of TV? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And the people who would answer your previous question about, is this just a case of sour grapes, Julie Pleck? The people who would say yes and stay on that side of yes, it's sour grapes, would probably point to the fact that This Is Us, Network TV for NBC, just took SAG's highest award, right? Best Ensemble, um, which for the Screen Actors Guild is akin to Best Drama at the Emmys. Yeah, sure. But I would then say… I'm not on that side, but… No, but my retort to that would be that's the first family drama we've seen on a network in years. If you tried to pitch a family drama at a network for probably the last decade or more, you would have been laughed out of the room. Uh, And I think it is in no small part the fact that that show had… It was sold on the backs of fans of Mandy Moore and Milo Ventimiglia and people going, yeah, yeah, these guys have huge social media presences and people want to watch them. 
Sterling K. Brown is by all accounts the breakout star of that show, but he wasn't a name in the same way before then. Julie Plack had another tweet. She goes on to say, don't get me started on the hurdles presented by network narrative expectations, which means uh, that things are going to rise to a peak ideally three times for November sweeps, February sweeps, and May sweeps, which are the times when networks are watching their shows more closely to see what peaks and what wins the night. Uh, I'm a third of the way through her tweet here. Don't get me started on the hurdles presented by network narrative expectations, focus groups, quote, rules, and crippling air date deadlines. It's an entirely different way to conceive, write, and produce TV, and when it's done with excellence, it should have a shot at being lauded. This is such preaching. She goes on to say, one of these days I'm going to write a Jerry Maguire-esque mission statement about this shit, but I think she already has. Uh, What she's talking about in the loosest terms is that if you have to make 22 episodes of TV, as she does as like a Shonda Rhimes show does, a scandal or a how to get away with murder or whatever, Grey's Anatomy, you start with sort of an eight to 10 week lead time before you start airing. You might start working in late June or early July, blah, blah, blah. You're going on the air in September and you have to fit your air dates and you have to work around the fact that you're working to a peak around an election or the Olympics. This year, all network programming will be off the air for 18, 20 days while the Olympic programming takes over everything. Then you have to discuss, you know, when are your peaks going to happen? When are your big, you know, holiday send-offs going to happen? All those kinds of things that you don't think about if you are, for example, my beloved show, The Americans, which does 10 episodes whenever the hell they feel like it. You know, you always talk about how we never know when Game of Thrones is coming back. Is it going to be 2018? Oh, no, now we know it's going to be 2019. You're going to get Game of Thrones when they're good and ready, and you're going to enjoy it. Whereas a show like A Grey's Anatomy or The Vampire Diaries or one of those shows comes back in September, maybe October 2nd if you're super lucky, and they're going to be there reliably with the start of school. And increasingly, the shows that get the acclaim are the shows that don't have to play by those rules. So she absolutely has a point. She does. And to go back to Ellen Pompeo last week, what we talked about in The Hollywood Reporter, she said, um, you know, and one of the things that she talked about uh, that she used in negotiation was being committed to 22 to 24 episodes on Grey's Anatomy on network television prevents me from working on other things. Like Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon are on TV now, but... Because uh, Big Little Lies was what, six, seven episodes? Seven episodes. Seven episodes and didn't have like a mandated start time as you were just talking about that they have to start in September and then they have to like re, what, pick up again in January and it ends in whatever, May. Um, they can work around Reese and Nicole and, and Laura Dern and all of their other filming schedules. When you commit to a network television show, uh, the talent that you want to go to, those are their considerations. Oh, okay, I have to commit to a pilot, and if it gets picked up, then 
The understanding is I can only work on movies. What is it in June and July? Do or maybe loosely May speaking, and, yeah. yeah, it it depends. Maybe yeah, April, May, June. So you're absolutely right. They it, like definitely the on the creative side. I definitely think they have a point to play devil's advocate. I do think that the streaming services as a business identified and exploited those flaws, if you want to call it that, those uh, stringent rules, those standards in network television, and decided, okay, here's what we can do. We don't have to make shows that are 22 and 24 episodes. We don't have to air them at specific times of the year. We don't have to not swear. We don't have to get notes from the network that are worried about the advertisers. This is what's going to happen. And I think it's really interesting because if you're just purely talking about how businesses succeed in identifying the downsides of their competitors and exploiting an opportunity, sure, they they did it and they did it very well. And they did it to the point that also exposed the fact that perhaps networks, not the talent, not the creatives, were slow to respond or didn't proactively identify that this is something that could have been exploited. Yeah. Well, to put it in, uh, you are so articulate on such a high level about businesses and what they choose and what they debate. Um, on On a baser level, for those of us who are fiends television wise, what the, uh, specialty video on demand networks kind of pointed out is of all the things you can provide to a consumer in terms of quality and high budget and recognizable names and all those things. And what will we have to sacrifice? You know, that sort of adage about you can have fast, cheap, and good pick two. Mm -hmm. What they decided to cut out was volume. They're like, no, people will stay with us if we only make 10 episodes, if we only make eight episodes, if we only make seven episodes in the case of Big Little Lies, or my favorite underrated, glorious uh, on-demand show this year was American Vandal. Uh Uh-huh. If you have not watched this show, please, God, find this show. American Vandal is eight episodes of roughly an hour long. And I say roughly because one of the million things that you don't have to worry about if you're on Netflix is how long is this episode supposed to be? The episode is as long as it needs to be. Yep. I will tell you in words that a network half hour, it varies from network to network, but a network mm-hmm. half hour is runs 21 minutes mm-hmm. and 30 seconds mm-hmm. to the penny. Like maybe your fade out is a little slower to get you there if it's a little short, or maybe you cut off somebody uh-huh. a little quickly to get to your commercial. Or you roll your a little longer credits. Yep. But it's yeah. 2130. A um an hour on a network that is to say like ER, for example, is I believe it's 4745. Yeah. I could be wrong on the seconds, but I know for sure it's 47. And what writers know is that television is calculated to be a minute per page. So that means if you hand in a 47-page script, Mm -hmm. you're getting 47 minutes of usable TV back. Uh, Gilmore Girls broke this rule constantly, and there are shows where you might have, like, gobs and gobs of action that don't necessarily take up that long. Right. It takes a long time on the page. But loosely speaking, 
a minute per page is understood. If you're Game of Thrones, I'm sure they are handing in 90 pages. They shoot whatever they shoot. They yeah. get what they get. Yeah. And they'll make the episode however the fuck long it needs yeah. to be. Like, they don't have to sacrifice anything. You know, on – if you're going to – like, you talked about um, 47 pages to hit it as close. And if you – let's say if you can only edit your script to 49 – then that means that months and months ahead of time, if you want that episode, let's say in one episode you cut out the opening animation. Then sure. Sure. Like if that's an option or you run longer credits, that has to go through how many sets of eyeballs at the network to approve that. Well, I kind of skeptical at sure because one of the things, like theme songs are gone, right? Like theme yeah. songs that used to introduce who was in the show. Yeah. I was talking to somebody about who's the boss today mm-hmm. and, you know, you can – picture that theme sequence, right? But those actors were contractually obligated to have those theme sequences and their names in front mm-hmm. at that time. You couldn't even cut those out back then. Yeah. You didn't even have that flexibility. And if you're wondering whether it's that big a deal, the biggest indicator to me is that Shonda Rhimes has taken Shondaland which is a phenomenally successful production company that produced hours and hours and hours of network television. You know she didn't go to Netflix because she needed the money. The money is nice, but I'm sure ABC was ready to pony up just as much to keep her. She went to Netflix for the story flexibility. She went to Netflix to be able to tell tales, to tell stories that don't have to be 22 hours times five years that can be... (laughs) told in seven hours and stop or, you know, 12 times 58 to 61 minutes or whatever it is. We don't need the restrictions on TV that we once had, but the people who still subscribe to them, which is to say the networks and the people who produce television for them, are under a different set of restrictions Mm -hmm. than those who aren't. And I mean, I'd like to take this moment to to say to the people who do only watch Netflix shows and who do only watch HBO shows because, you know, those shows are better and I like them more and they appeal to me more. And hey, I get it. Like, we all get it. We all do watch Netflix and we all do want, watch it and we all do watch HBO. One of those arguments has been like, and it's so great that there are no commercials. I get that. That has been, given that, like, you know, we don't want interruption in narrative, understandable. That said, I'm not sure that you're going to, even if you strictly watch Netflix, that you're not going to get the commercials anymore. They will just creatively find a way to work it in. And I say this because two episodes ago on Blackish, they actually did a really good brand partnership commercial integration in the content of the show. Um, I'm not sure if you've watched the episode yet, but I'm going to send it to you. So it was an integration and Yasik and I, like, because we are involved in the business of, of marketing and whatnot. I just want to pause you and talk about what commercial or product integration means. Uh, if you don't know, in the age of PVRs, even if you're only watching network television, even if you're only ever watching things that air on ABC or NBC or CBS, people have PVRs. They can fast forward past commercials now, right? They don't have to watch 30 Seconds for Tide, 
followed by 30 seconds for Sprint, followed by whomever. None of these people are sponsoring our podcast. Um, so the products, the advertisers have had to figure out creative ways to allow their products to get the airtime that they once got just by buying it. And so they're now collaborating with the shows. This is product integration at its That's right. most basic. And at its most basic, before it used to be like Tony Stark walked into his office and in the corner of his office, there was a can of Pepsi. Sure. And right? you see the camera see it. That's right. Or he was wearing a t-shirt. But now, especially on Blackish, it was product integration that was seamless with creative. So they wrote an entire episode around the product integration, which was, and at the time when you're watching it, you don't know it, which is, speaks to how clever Kenya Barris is. Uh, like, so the, it was a beautiful episode. It was a beautiful episode and part of it, I can't remember if it was the A plot or the B plot, but, uh, Dre was tasked, uh, at work to come up with a campaign, um, about the, the teachings that parents pass on to their kids. And as a black man, he was like, well, our parents always taught us that we had to be better, that black kids have to work this much harder and do this much better than their white counterparts. And of course, the other lesson was if you're pulled over and all that kind of, kind of thing. Right. There's an expression for the first part of what you were talking about, right? Yeah. You have to work twice as hard to be seen as half as good. That's right. So the whole ad campaign was about, or the whole episode was about Dre struggling to put that into an ad campaign because he works with, and if you watch the show, you know, he goes into an office with deliberately ignorant white people who are, are, are stand-ins for the ignorance in other parts of the country. And so he couldn't find a way to connect with those people. And the episode as it evolved was the episode as it evolved was Dre sitting down with each of his colleagues who weren't black and finding common ground uh, and ways to tell stories that their parents used to tell them. The episode ends and immediately there are two Procter & Gamble ads that run back to back that repeat the taglines that Dre does in his marketing pitches. And the Commercials are so beautiful. They're about acceptance and difference and diversity and uh, at representation and inclusion that when you finish the 20, what, 22-minute episode of Blackish and you go right into four minutes of these commercials, it wasn't offensive and it was like super, super, uh, it was, it, it landed. It, it like, it pounded down the point. We're going to be seeing some of that, too, eventually. Well, um, more and more often. I'm so glad you brought that up because what it points out, of course, is that there are so many amazing uh, advertisers and brands on and off Blackish uh, who know that familiarity with brands and advertising is more than just something we sit through while we're waiting for our show to come back on. Uh, I've been lucky enough to work with some savvy, savvy brands who get the idea that entertainment and the convergence of the products that we love 
can be seamless, can be worked in like that, and can be, as you say, not just not offensive, but like an added bonus to the product. And that is something that I should point out, we do see on and off network television, right? There are definitely sponsorships and uh, promotional considerations, as they're often called, or whatever, on shows on HBO, on Netflix, on all those kinds of things. But when it's done in a way that is thoughtful and considerate, you don't see it as an interruption. And the old school broadcast standards that Julie Pleck is kind of railing against justifiably have a lot to do with, uh, you know, a number of elements that used to be the key to the way that television was made. And people are constantly working and discovering new ways that they can be made to satisfy kind of all the stakeholders involved, which marks the first time I have ever said stakeholders in an earnest conversation. <laughs> but let me ask you this, because I, I talk about Blackish. You know how I feel about Blackish. I love it so much. And Blackish, once every episode or once at least every other episode drops a shit or a fuck that's bleeped. Right. Which, like, was not available on, like, Family Ties, for example. Right. And so... Do you think, and or sorry, in addition to that, uh, you talked about Freeform earlier, and the Blackish spinoff, Grownish, is on Freeform, and they don't bleep up. Did they bleep out the shit? They don't. Right. They don't bleep out the shit, and like there's drugging in there, and a casual mention of abortion in the first episode. Actually, this is a pretty you know, as realistic as we can get, a pretty realistic depiction of college life in the sense of like, these are kids who are partying more than they're studying. You know, they're popping pills to write essays. They're uh, they're freely admitting that they've had abortions. Um, do you think that that broadcast standards will loosen to the point for pure competitive reasons, given that they're like, fuck, we're losing ground to HBO and Netflix and they can shit, fuck, and pussy and cunt and dick, cock, whatever, their way through an entire episode. Can we just fucking relax? I mean, yeah, I do think that's happening and I do think it has happened. I think what where that comes from is having created a product where that's authentic. I don't have the encyclopedic blackish memory that you do, but I bet if you go back to season one, in the first 10 episodes where the show is unproven and it's on a network, I don't know if they were there yet. I don't know if they right. were dropping a bleep every single episode. They've sure. earned that, right? Grownish is the demonstration of, as they would call it uh, if you were in like a network meeting, a proven concept. Yeah. Grownish is a proven concept. Oh, we absolutely can spin off Yara Shahidi into our own show. This is how it's going to work and it's going to be like blackish, but amplified, but twisted, but, you know, without the restrictions of ABC at 8.30 or whenever it airs. So the restrictions are lifted on a case-by-case -case basis. The example that you and I always come back to is that Scandal uh, in December, I believe, of 2015 had a holiday-themed episode in which Olivia Pope has an abortion on camera while Silent Night plays. 
Um, I'm sorry. I gave you incorrect information. We talked about it in December 2015. It aired in November 2015. Right. A holiday episode, the last episode before the holiday break, featured Olivia Pope, a black woman, aborting a pregnancy that was conceived with the fictional president of the United States, and we saw it happen in the exam room while Silent Night played. That's dramatic. That's bold. It was not the first abortion that it was ever on network television. It was not the first abortion by a main character, but it was the first time we saw a character who was maybe carrying a pregnancy of note, for lack of a better term, and who went on to have a conversation through the rest of the episode that had nothing to do with regret or despair. And again, it was scored to Silent Night. That was bold and dramatic as all hell. And I remember saying to you at the time, and I remember reflecting after the fact that it went almost entirely unnoticed and unchallenged. Mm -hmm. Partly it's because ABC knew enough by then to let Shonda Rhimes do what she was going to do. Partly it was because they didn't publicize it so as not to court controversy that they didn't need. And partly it was because it was a different time politically. But the limits have been broken when they needed to be. They have been stretched and moved uh, when necessary, when exemplified by, you know, sort of outstanding people. Uh, But in terms of like the goalposts moving overall, it's a slower process for sure. You have to earn the right to break the rules. So speaking of change in television and really across the board as we're seeing in Hollywood, there were two documents circulating this week um, there and there were Google Docs anonymous Google Docs with writers, TV writers, sharing their pay and TV actors, right? Sharing their pay? Yeah. I don't know if the actor Google Doc is limited to TV actors. Right. Um, But yeah, kind of in the same vein as the shitty media men Google Doc that we heard about being circulated before the holidays that was, of course, revealed to have been written by writer Moira Donegan in an article on The Cut. Um, these Google Docs have been going around, uh, kind of advertised. I saw it maybe a little over a week ago. Hey, writers, hey, actors, add your salary, add your information to this Google document, and everybody can see how they're being paid in comparison to you and what you make. And it's been amazing. And I... I guess, as you said, it's you don't know if it was all TV actors, but I say TV actors in particular because the one line that you highlighted to me was a TV actor who specified like their role on a show and how many episodes and what season it was in, right? Um, they got really, like really, really detailed. Yeah. So both documents, and we will link to them because of course they're publicly accessible, Um, please don't add information to them if you are not a TV writer or (laughs) actor because uh, there are people who say, well, how do you know any of this is accurate? And it's like, you don't. You go on the good faith that people are contributing what they know to be true. 
But yeah, there are a million columns to ask. Are you male or female? Are you a person of color? What's your experience level? What's the network you're working for or the not network? What's your role? What's your title? What are you paid per episode, which is usually how actors and writers are paid? Uh, and, you know, other pertinent details. Sometimes people say, well, I'm paid this, but it's worth this over part of a, you know, a three-season deal, or I'm going up this much next season if we get renewed, or blah, blah, blah. So walk me through this. Those two documents, specifically the writer, since you are a TV writer, how, how authentic did it feel to you? It felt surprisingly authentic. Um, first of all, because there is a range of TV writer titles in there. Um, writer's assistants have various titles. You can be a writer's assistant or a showrunner's assistant or a room assistant. And they all almost uniformly make pretty paltry money. Uh, and my apologies to anybody who is a TV writer's assistant or uh, a showrunner's assistant, but I think it's pretty well acknowledged that the money they're making, often with no guarantees, with no benefits, with no whatever, is pretty subsistence level. And then as you move up through the ranks, and they are, they differ depending on whether you're in Canada or the U.S., but they're pretty understood ranks that one steps from a, being a staff writer to a story editor to an executive story editor to a co-producer to a supervising producer to an co-executive producer and finally being an executive producer, which can mean all kinds of things. And yes, a producer can also mean all kinds of other non-writing things. Um, the jumps in money and title to a certain extent are incremental and also substantial, which is to say usually people have a, a jump incorporated in their contract. If they stick around at this show for X number of years, you're going to get this title bump or this salary bump. And uh, they're often reflected. There's a lot of money happening if your show goes for long enough, if you stick around on that show for long enough uh, on both the actors and writers' parts. And it's very exciting to see people share this so that you know what you should be asking for. Well, one of the really, really interesting observations that you made before we started recording is that some of the information here is so vague and yet so specific to people who know the industry and who understand what all these line items on this spreadsheet, which I hate reading spreadsheets, so it really didn't mean that much to me. But of course, you are in a different position. You, you, know all the members on a crew and on a writing staff. Anyway, my point is, is that some of these line items are so specific that it's not hard to deduce who this person might be who's sharing this information or at least narrow it down, you said, to like one of maybe three or four people. Yeah. And, you know, I have to think that's intentional. So, for example, uh, on the actor's spreadsheet, there's somebody who identifies themselves as a series regular says their gender is female, they're not a person of color, their network is network, they don't specify which network, uh, they are in, there's a question that says, how many episodes are you in? They say 13, uh, and they don't specify how many episodes are in the series, uh, but then they say uh, $35,000 salary per episode, and the other notes is also an executive producer on the show. I mean, I'm not here to call anybody out, 
But it's amazing that let's say you can list, I don't know, 15 series where there is a female star who's also an executive producer on the show. One of them has just told you how much money she makes and, you know, that that is her fee for both roles. Maybe. Maybe not. She maybe also collects a separate salary as an executive producer. But that's extremely useful. If you are at home and you have a YouTube series and like Hulu is coming calling and saying they're going to make six episodes of your show now, now you have a range in which to discuss and converse. I also think it's kind of intentional that it's not that hard to hide. I think it's very ballsy to be like, yeah, so you're going to figure me out. So what? So people know what I make. So what? I'm proud of what I make. I also am looking at this list and, of course, the first column or the second column after level is gender. And it seems like a pretty even split between men and women. In fact, there might even be more men. Are we on actors here or on writers? TV actor salary. Yeah. Um, and so… In the time of the Time's Up movement, we have been focusing on which men are not on side or who are questionably on side. Who are not contributing to the movement in one way or another, right? So again, as you said, there are obviously people out there who are like, I don't give a shit. Fine. I'm proud of what I make and here's what I make and here's what's helpful. Uh, we have heard from The Hollywood Reporter, that at Time's Up meetings, transparency has become a thing, where actresses in particular are getting together and saying, listen, best practices, here's, here's my best practice negotiation strategy, here's ballpark what I've been making, use this if you can. Um, in particular, this came out around Tracy Ellis Ross, and they were all talking about what she might want to do, what her options were when she's negotiating for a pay raise on Blackish. Because, of course, it came out that she was not being paid uh, in the same leagues as Anthony Anderson. And so there have been contract discussion around uh, her next moves. That's right. And without, I mean, I don't want to get into the Tracy Ellis Ross situation. We've already discussed that. We've written about it. But this this atmosphere of lifting a a previously held Hollywood standard and social standard where you don't talk about money and you don't divulge and you keep everybody apart from each other, it seems to be not just among top-level actors and the brand-name, bold-face-named people that are recognizable in headlines, but it seems to be having a trickle-down effect with writers and with TV actors, some of whom are mostly getting work as guest actors, one or two episodes here and there. Will it be, tricking, will it be trickling down to camera operators and PAs throughout the industry? I, I love that you brought that up, and because that to me is the juiciest part of this document, and I say that not to make it gossip, but because it's the most useful. One of the entries here says, female lead, number two on call sheet. So that's the person telling you not only kind of what they do for a living, but also where they are. 
There's another person who lists themselves as a male who identifies as a person of color who says that they are, this lists their one day quote uh, as $3,500. That is what we call a working actor, you guys. That is not somebody famous. That is not a celebrity. That is somebody who is just like, yeah, if I show up for a day, here's what I get paid. That person is contributing to the conversation. They are removing the opacity around actors and what they get paid and what they should get paid. If he sees somebody who is comparable to him in every way with similar network experience or whatever, who's making twice that, so okay, so he and his agent work it out and ask for a second amount of money. Transparency and being honest about what you make and how you got there uh, and with the writers more than the actors, they're very specific about what level of experience they're at or how they got there or what is, uh, what else is packaged in their deals. Uh, it allows their experience to benefit everybody else. And it's just such a huge thing because we're always saying, well, what else can I do? Why is it my problem if Sony doesn't pay Jennifer Lawrence that much? Well, here's what you can do. Here's how you can speak to that. Now, in a real-world application, we touched on this several months ago. I think I brought it up where I was saying that in non-Hollywood business, they had started, people had started to float and suggest, propose whether or not salaries should be made public. And we briefly touched on it. I don't think we reached a conclusion, um, but... I wonder if this is going to have, beyond Hollywood, as we've seen, it's starting to have a trickle effect throughout different uh, throughout different departments, for lack of a better word, on any particular project. I wonder, in a real-world application, if we're going to start seeing more of this in corporations, in offices, um, that aren't necessarily involved in Hollywood. Well, I love that you say that. Since... The last time I clicked on the TV writer's salary spreadsheet a day ago, somebody posted a link that said, journalists, somebody made you your own survey. Enter your info here. So I think everybody loves the idea of this. We also talked about organizations that have publicly published bands of salary ranges. So if you have this title, you're going to have a band, a salary between X and Y. I guess the question is, why not? What is the, who would oppose doing this and why shouldn't they? I mean, obviously if you have something to hide, you have something to hide. That's the idea, right? Or if you are proud to make your salary and think that it is an accurate representation of your worth, you're not that troubled about it. Well, last episode you brought up uh, the, the friend that you had who said, what does it cost me? And so I guess ultimately the question here is, who does it cost the most for transparency to become a trend across all businesses? Does it cost you if you are standing by your salary because you can back the fuck up, like you can back that shit up, why you earn the salary, why you deserve it? Or does it cost the people who have to pay you the salary or pay everybody the salary? Who does it cost? And how many people does it cost? It's so interesting that you bring that up because I, I, you know, you employ several people in several different permutations 
and I suspect you could stand behind the salaries you pay them. Nobody is feeling anxious about the salaries they pay other people, right? Most of the time, most of the anxiety that is allegedly happening here is because of people having to admit to or stand behind their own salaries. This subsection arm branch of the conversation that were happening born out of Time's Up, uh, which was born out of Me Too, is about people, i.e. Mark Wahlberg, justifying their own salaries and whether or not their own salaries are exorbitant or not. I think most people would stand behind the salaries they administer to others. And yeah, the idea is, are you going to be embarrassed by, say, your seven-figure-plus salary if you work for a nonprofit where you are meant to be working towards the greater good of some cause or other, and your own profit is substantial, say? I think most people in entertainment and outside of entertainment would point to a million variables that we can't put our fingers on, unpredictability or, you know, the discomforts of travel or unpleasant hours or working conditions or whatever as substantial justification for the money they make. And the people who are uncomfortable with it maybe are the ones whose cost, as you point out, is in that they can't point to something that justifies the dollar figure. And finally, because this podcast is uh, produced out of a gossip website, we have a little gossip story that also can be related to work, as most gossip stories can. It's, I mean, it's way related to work. I only want to praise the reader who sent it to us, who had the foresight, it was Jenna, who had the foresight to send it to us and go, this is not just a good story. This is show your work. It is, but it's also fucking amazing, dishy, petty, fucking, like, gossip. Okay, so just so you know what world we're living in here, we're talking musical theater. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. I love that you have to... (laughs) Go ahead, nerd. I mean, I'm just saying, look... Let's just get real here. I love that you have to disclaimer yourself now well, because with your this musical story, theater shit. Oh, for God's sake. Are we doing this? <laughs> this story involves two names that either don't mean anything to you or mean everything. Okay? I sit here when you tell me sports things and golf things. So we're going to tell... Bullshit. I do not fucking, like... Throw, have never thrown a sports shit thing at you like the way you've thrown Hamilton at me. But sometimes you say names that I'm supposed to know, like. Exactly. Well, I don't want to mock those people <laughs> by mocking their names, but like a, a Rory McElroy or a. McElroy. I know McElroy. it's McElroy. I'm making a comedic point. Okay. <laughs> Jenna sent us a story about Andrew Lloyd Webber, famed and maligned, uh, probably accurately maligned composer 
of Phantom of the Opera and Starlight Express and Evita, right? Evita, a million other shows. And Patti LuPone, who is, of course, a glorious Broadway star, but if you've never set foot in Broadway a minute in your life, she was the mom in Life Goes On. Okay? We all caught up? Yes. Right. So but can we can we call Patty Lupone like at this point a legend? Oh yes. Okay. Good. We can also yes. call Patty Lupone. I was early in my television career. Uh, I and everybody else who worked at eTalk, where you and I eventually met, had the word diva like beaten out of our systems. We were not allowed at that point to call Beyonce a diva or like I don't know. Katy Perry didn't exist yet. Christina Aguilera, a diva. Right. But Patti LuPone is a legitimate, mm-hmm. earned, qualified, and stamped diva. Yes. Copy. So um, on Thursday night, uh, Patti LuPone uh, was at an event, I guess like kind of a live rehearsal for Don't Cry For Me Argentina. Uh, and there was an audience there for to listen to her rehearse this song, which she has not sung in some 25-odd years because, <laughs> like, Elaine can't even keep it together to get through this story. <laughs> it's just, it's so bitchy and amazing. <laughs> like, everybody here is a bitch. And I love it. I'm here for it. it. Gives me life. So this is the difference between Broadway people and like, you know, film people. Like maybe back in the day somebody wouldn't come out of their trailer or their dressing room or whatever. No, no, no. Patty Lupone shows up. She has not spoken to Andrew Lloyd Webber since 1994 <laughs> when he fired her from Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> and gave the role to Glenn Close. As you do. (laughs) And she sued him. For a million dollars, which was a deal back then. And then, like, it it gets glorious. I feel like we need to save the the lawsuit money for a little soupçon postscript. But. (laughs) But they haven't spoken. They haven't spoken. She shows up to rehearse this. And also, can we just respect the theatricality of Broadway people here? Like, they could have had this rehearsal at 9.45 in the morning in, like, a nondescript sixth floor somewhere. But no, they had it at uh, the Hit Factory on West 54th Street. There were people there who, like, (laughs) were able to verify the story. So he gets there. She's not there yet. His diva has not yet arrived. And they're they're rehearsing this, of course, because they're going to be on the Grammys. Yeah. And then she... Like, sweeps in, she's late, which is amazing. (laughs) The power of late here. And then she, like, allegedly swans in, picks up the microphone. Let me see if I can get her voice, right? She goes like, hello, Andrew. And then tells everybody else, this is a detente, ladies and gentlemen. Like... (laughs) Broadway legend number one announces to a room full of people that she and Broadway legend number two have decided to, like, hold it down long enough for her to rehearse one of the most famous songs of musical theater, period, the end. Don't cry for me, Argentina. 
<laughs> Sorry. I feel uncomfortable that you just did that. <laughs> well, too bad. Um, yes. But the work angle here is. Oh, my God. The work angle here is amazing. It's all about like when you have a disagreement with somebody, a work fight, a whatever, and what's the moment that makes you go, I'm going to put this aside? And what's the situation under which you agree to become not who you were and, and allow that to be aside? In this case, it's a Leonard Bernstein tribute on the Grammys. Bernstein would have been a hundred, literally. So she's singing an Andrew Lloyd Webber song. Um, <laughs> I say this not to be cavalier, but, you know, it's about timing. It's about picking your moment. In your opinion, who comes out better in this situation? Patty, fuck. Like, I don't even give a shit about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Why? I, well, I mean, I, this is like super petty, but here we are. He always has, like, that face, even when he's happy, he looks like he's he's about to grudge somebody. Don't you think? I mean, I, look, I did a grade nine biography project on Andrew Lloyd Webber. I can tell you all kinds of things about him, including his children's names and the fact that his first and second wife were both named Sarah. Um, the face is the least of the of the list. What are you here. talking about? He looks like Peter Pettigrew. <laughs> Okay, but like his face is his face. His talent is what we're talking about here. He's written all these songs. He's created basically an entire generation and a half of Broadway hits. That's a massive body of work. There are people, I am not one, who would say he has made many a Broadway star. He has created them. He has allowed them to embody his creations. I go back here to, I mean, what we're talking about essentially is when you make someone, do they have to be loyal to you? And he did not make Patti LuPone. Let's get real. Patti LuPone has been Patti LuPone long before and after Sunset Boulevard. But was it advantageous to her to make up in this way and to also sweep in and make sure she had the upper hand? Yeah, for sure. Um, credit to her for even being the one to kind of own it and nod to it. I think that's, you know, once you sort of step forward and are the one who's like, yeah, it was weird and we're deliberately getting over the weirdness, you automatically are the winner in that situation, even if you maybe didn't behave so well in the past. Patty? Yeah. How did Patty not behave well in the past? Well... Um, you know, she has been the one to talk about the rift, to talk about the feud, and most notably, sources say, uh, you know, remember that $1 million payout for mm -hmm. ditching her from Sunset Boulevard? She put a pool in her house and called it the Andrew Lloyd Webber <laughs> Memorial Pool. <laughs> so she didn't need the money. She did not need the money. She doesn't really even need the acclaim. She is doing this, and this is what I love. For the love of the music, I will agree to meet with Andrew and rehearse and create a detente, ladies and gentlemen. Like, I love that. She gets to be the one to own it. 
Here's what I love about this story that we can relate back to Ellen Pompeo and Shonda Rhimes. We talked last week about loyalty. Yep. And we talked about a showrunner's loyalty uh, to, or we talked about an actor's loyalty to her showrunner and what that brought to her showrunner, how that loyalty also empowered the showrunner and brought the showrunner, Shonda Rhimes in that case, to a certain place in Shonda's career and how Shonda then used that loyalty to not repay Ellen Pompeo, but also... Uh, well, let me use what? a, like, misuse the science term. She almost refracted it back onto correct. her. Correct. And I like so, that you said correct about my misuse of a science term. Yeah, you're right. Correct. correct. That's what, but you, yes, you, you encapsulated it with that word. And so can we apply the loyalty situation to Andrew Lloyd Webber and Patty Lupone? I'm so glad you phrased it that way because it becomes to me not just about loyalty, but about purity. So Patty Lupone is in Evita in 1979. Then they say they want her to sing the signature song, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, now on these Grammys. And they need to cut it down. And she says, well, I'm not doing it unless Andrew Lloyd Webber, who wrote the song, cuts it down. I'm not going to do a trimmed version unless he's the one to do it. She may hate his guts. She may have all kinds of monuments in her house, like devoted to mocking him, but she knows he's the one to craft and recraft the music in the way that only he can, right? She arguably was the originator of this song because he created it, and she's going to allow him to be the one to reimagine it. So in that way, yeah, the loyalty is all there. And the loyalty is not only really to him, but the loyalty is to the art form. A hundred percent. Like, Petty people can have petty feelings about whatever, but the art is supreme. Like, I feel like we're in a museum in New York right now, like, talking about the authenticity of the of the creation and how it rises so far above petty humans. I love that there are people who are, like, literally this artistic, that that's their highest ideal. But that's why, to go back to your original question, who do you think is coming out ahead here? I'm going to say Patty. Because to, to sort of extend that loyalty, not only to the creator, but to the art form, to me says, well, shit. Like, what else can the answer be? Yeah. And I, I like that they're both, but it just... And he looks like Peter Pettigrew. You think he looks like Peter Pettigrew. I think it's amazing that they're both like, we are slaves to the stage. Like, they <laughs> might hate each other, but they have to do what the music dictates. I'm... I'm Deeply, deeply enamored of this situation. I got to work on my Patty Lupone impression, though. Grammys on Sunday, Patty Lupone. By the time you listen to this, you will have already watched and uh, appreciated the performance. Hopefully, this little story will round that out for you. And written to us about the glory of it. And just make sure you give your props to Jenna, who spotted this and made it make our list at the last minute. Thank you, Jenna, and thank you always for listening to Show Your Work and for sharing your work with us, for caring about work. We will be back next week, but in the meantime, check us out on Google Play and on iTunes. Please leave your comments. Hit us up wherever you get podcasts and tell us about the stories you want to hear and things you want to argue about, and we will be back next time. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 